Welcome to Our Story, Your Story, the video podcast where we share our personal experiences and invite you to share yours. We are Toby Eunice and Shelley Carney, and together we'll take you on a journey through our lives and the lives of our family, friends, and guests. We believe that everyone has a story to tell, and we can all learn from each other's experiences. So whether you're looking for inspiration, entertainment, or simply a good story, you've come to the right place. Hello, and welcome to Our Story, Your Story. I'm Shelley Carney. And I'm Toby Ewens. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to be jumping back into A Gypsy's Kiss, A Treasure Hunt Adventure. Uh... The chapter that we're on is uh, 31. We're going to read 31 and 32. If you remember from last time, um, Miguel and Mariah were lying together on top of a mausoleum, <laughs> getting getting it on. Um, <laughs> well, they were. In a romantic interlude. Oh, Okay. <laughs> So getting it on. Let's get it on. <laughs> and we uh you know we were there until Miguel fell asleep. And uh anything you want to add? No. I think I already did. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Chapter 31, the morning after. You'd think after that life-changing special night, I'd have awakened to a beautiful sunrise and birds chirping in the trees. Instead, I'm being poked in the back with something harder than anything Mariah had on her, and I'm being shouted at in a gruff voice with what sounds like a New York accent. Hey, hey, buddy, get up. The voice sounds official to me. <laughs> Are you going to do this New York accent? With, it's as uh, good as it's going to get. Okay. The voice sounds <clears throat> official to me, so I do what I'm told. I turn around, meeting the stares of two police officers wearing uniforms with accessories that indicate they are employed by the New Orleans Police Department. I read the name badge on the uniform of the officer poking me with his nightstick. O'Flaherty. Come on, get down from there. You been drinking? No, sir, I answer, as I rub the sleep from my eyes. I look all around, expecting to see Mariah, but she is not there. Sometime during the night, while I had been asleep, she had slipped away, leaving me. Not that I blame her. She has enough problems dealing with Jean-Luc and her grandfather without meeting up with the NOPD first thing in the morning. My jacket falls off my shoulder as I sit up. Before I can reach for it, Officer O'Flaherty grabs it, and the other takes hold of my arm to pull me off the mausoleum. Where are your shoes? <laughs> This is really getting dramatic. Sorry. <clears throat> <clears throat> He's a Florida. He should have an Irish accent. Oh, yeah. Well, it said New York, though. Mm. Where are your shoes? Officer O'Flaherty asks. I lost them in the river. With skepticism in his voice and a look of disbelief, he says, You lost them in the river? I did, yes. I lost them in the river. Turning back toward their car and pulling me along with them, he sarcastically remarks, the Sarge is going to love this one. <laughs> Would you like to do? No, no, I oh, just okay. never, you know, I've never imagined. I mean, I've, I've never actually imagined the voice from there. <laughs> it was gruff. I would call it that. They were both older. Well, the, oh, Flaherty, the, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. As we are walking <clears throat> to the car, the other officer with a southern accent asks, 
How old are you, boy? I glance at his name badge, Avery, and answer, I'm 15. You from around here someplace? No. Officer O'Flaherty turns and asks, where are you from? New Mexico. You come across the border? Nope, I say, realizing that Officer O'Flaherty thinks I'm from another country rather than the state on the other side of Texas. As we arrive at the car, Officer O'Flaherty opens the rear door and motions for me to get in, pushing my head down so I don't hit the door frame. Once I sit down, he leans forward on both elbows, resting on the car roof, and asks, You gonna run? Run? Run from what? Run from the car. Do I have a reason to run from the car? I don't know, he answers. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. With that, he takes his handcuffs from the leather pocket on his belt, snaps them onto my wrists, stands up, and announces, That's for your own protection. Why do adults say stuff like that to kids? Like, this hurts me more than it hurts you, or it's for your own good, or worse, you'll thank me someday. I roll my eyes in reaction to his statement while he is still looking at me. Yeah, tough guy, huh? Chapter 32, NOLA Police. The two officers check in with the balding, hefty police sergeant who speaks with even more of a New York accent than Officer O'Flaherty. He asks me several questions and with some skepticism repeats each of the answers as he writes them down on his form. When he is done, he rips the form off the top of his pad, hands it to O'Flaherty, and says, Get a mugshot and his prints. Walk him down to holding one and tell them he needs a shower. We'll figure out what to do with him later. I don't do New York accents. Mm. I'm sorry. Can't do it. Okay. Avery tells O'Flaherty that he's going to the locker room and heads off in another direction. This process should intimidate and perhaps even frighten me. Instead, I'm feeling like this is just another part of my adventure. It's almost predictable. I'm surrounded by police officers and the men and women they've arrested, handcuffed, and brought to the same jail. But there is a surreal part of this that excludes all the negative images one could imagine about jail. There is much activity, and some of the women that arrive in handcuffs are obviously prostitutes, but they're well-coiffed, wearing beautiful clothing, and perfumed in a variety of aromas that seem to be wafting all around the area. Is this jail? I wonder. Then, like a bolt of lightning, everything changes as three officers, attempting to wrangle a large and combative man, explode through the main door. The tense energy in the room escalates immediately and dramatically. They are fighting him. He is fighting them. And the enticing aroma of perfume that I was experiencing just a few seconds before is replaced with the stench of sweat and anger, and it's all moving like a tidal wave in my direction. The comfort and curiosity I was feeling instantly converts to fear of this enraged mob closing in on me. It takes a couple of minutes and several more officers to get him under control as desks and chairs are knocked out of place. Curses and commands fill the room and people scatter away from the violence. Eventually, he's laying on his stomach, panting and growling with two officers on top of him. Curiously, He's dressed in a robin's egg blue suit and a shirt with frills on the front, both of them now dirty and soaking wet. I wonder if he came from a stint as a best man at a wedding. As Quiet returns to the room, he lifts his head and turns in my direction. Seeing that I'm staring at him, in a loud, deep, and angry voice, he shouts, What are you looking at, Jack? 
<laughs> I didn't mean to put you through all these through all these uh, accents. <clears throat> Before I can answer, had I even thought about answering, a couple of the bigger officers pick him up by the arms, drag him past the sergeant's desk and into the hall leading to the jail cells. My nerves jitter as if I had just consumed several cups of coffee as surreal abruptly disappears to reveal reality. I'm much more aware of the possibility of the danger of this place. After fingerprinting and mugshots, O'Flaherty, form still in hand, walks me down a hall to the holding area. He turns me over to another officer who, from his desk, looks me up and down, adjusting his black-rimmed Coke-bottle-thick eyeglasses, apparently to measure my height and weight. He then gets up from his desk and goes to a room behind him. He returns with a set of dark blue clothing, some underwear, a t-shirt, and some slip-on blue shoes, all of which had been stenciled with NOLA Jail. The clothing officer points to a door with a glass window and directs, Go in there, get your clothes off, throw them in a garbage can, take a shower. There are a couple of towels on the shelf. Dry yourself. Put on these clothes and knock on the door when you're done. The officer then asks O'Flaherty, What am I supposed to do with him? Sarge says, put him in holding one. In a sarcastic voice, the officer asks, not into general population? They have a hearty laugh, and O'Flaherty says, nah, I don't think he could handle it. A shiver runs through me. He's right. I don't want to be anywhere near wedding guy, and who might, who might want to take out his anger on the kid he caught staring at him? I take the clothes he hands me and step into the shower room. When I'm done, I knock on the glass window, walk out, and then follow along to holding one. The room is about 10 feet square with a metal toilet, a metal sink, and a mattress laid upon a built-in concrete banco. Toilet paper is dispensed a sheet at a time from a metal slit in the wall next to the toilet. There are a pair of sheets and a pillowcase on the bed. I'm the only one in this room, which provides me with some sense of safety. The officer asks, you warm enough? I respond, yes, sir. He offers, I can get you a blanket if you want. No, I'm good. You'll be okay here. I can see this hallway from my desk, and nobody comes down here without my knowing it. Thank you. So, your first experience being in jail. I was, as we discussed this last night, I was trying to remember, is that my first experience? Yeah, it was. There, yeah. were, there, were some, there was at least one in college, and there were a couple in the military. Yeah. <laughs> but I haven't done anything since then. Not since Afghanistan. <clears throat> well, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know too much, don't I? Yeah, you do. <laughs> so 2010 or 20, 2009 20, or 10? 2009, yeah. Nine. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, a few a few times. Uh, this, uh, this first time seemed to be a gentle uh, introduction, pretty much. I think they had a sense that I was not their average... Uh, Convicts, certainly, but at least not their average rebellious young adult. Yeah. Uh, I didn't behave that way. I was very polite, um, you know, with yesers and no sirs. And for some reason, <clears throat> I understood that being a jerk was not going to help me. Yeah. And not that I had the experience before, but I'd always known from my parents that if you, you know, act 
normally, you're going to be treat, treated as if you're normal. And if you act abnormally, the same is true. Uh, you'll be treated as if you're abnormal. So I just did, it for, and the other thing too, as you said, it was my first time, I hadn't experienced this. I, I, I didn't know what it was like to be, you know, and I wasn't arrested. Mm -hmm. uh, they just, they put me in holding mostly well, for my protection. Fingerprinted and fingerprinted mugshot. Uh, and I think that's just the uh, necessary uh, to document what they've done because now what they have is a uncharged minor, mm -hmm. right? Effectively. So I think a lot of that was to make sure they're protecting themselves from any future lawsuit. Um, and they took action. I mean, they, they did what they could. They realized this was, they, I think their option was to say, okay, well, get out of here, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think the next place I would have gone anyway would have been the uh, police station to find out what happened to Uncle Carlos's motorcycle. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it was good for them, as good for them as it was for me in the sense that it gave them uh, protection, legal protection, in case something were to arise later about how they treated this person who wasn't a convict, uh, but they just went through the documentation process and there's nothing that done in the law that prevents them from doing that, you know, unless I were to say, um, you know, I've gone through what I, what I would do now, which is, am I being charged with anything? Mm -hmm. um, are, am I free to go? You know, there's a series of questions yeah. that you learn in life that you need to ask to avoid any further prosecution. It's the same as if you're uh, stopped on a highway and one of those, uh, drunk driving, you know, highway stops. <clears throat> you don't have to answer those questions, right? It's not against the law for them to ask you, but all you have to say is, I don't care to answer your questions. And if they say, well, we're going to hold you here for a minute, you say, am I free to go? And uh, you're well within your rights to be able to do that, unless they charge you, you know, right then for driving too quickly into the road stop. So... <laughs> But I didn't know, you know, not having this experience, I didn't know any of that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Nor, I think, would I, had I known it, would I have invoked it. Uh, at this point, I was starting to feel like this is probably the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, let it go mm -hmm. this way. Since I didn't have a lot of options yeah. at that point. You didn't have anything else planned anyway. No. <laughs> so might as well do this. <clears throat> Let them kind of figure out what to do. Yeah, mission accomplished. You know, I made it to New Orleans. Yeah. Experience Mardi Gras. Yeah. Now uh, let's now see what, what happens. <laughs> now what? Get back on the motorcycle and ride back to New Mexico. Except I don't know where the motorcycle is. Yeah. And you hadn't actually planned to go beyond that at all. I had thought about it. Uh, I had thought about it, but at the point that I was at, uh, at that at that point, mm -hmm. had I not been uh, taken in by the police, mm -hmm. uh, I think I would have spent time looking for the motorcycle, trying to figure out where it was, and then I would have very likely at that point, I, I felt like, oh, okay, well, that's over for now. Had you know, my adventure. Had my adventure. Home. I'm safe. I'm still alive. Um <laughs> You know, I've got plenty to plenty of stories to tell. Yeah. Why don't I just head back? I home? had my taste of freedom. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> uh, I think at some point uh, during the night, I thought to myself, "Man, I have got to finish my education. Mm. You know, figure out how I'm going to make a living so that I could experience these things." Yeah, we kind of get into that in some later chapters. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah. 
Uh, so some of the themes and emotions that were prevalent in these two chapters uh, include adolescence and growing up. Miguel is going through a transformative period and uh, his adventure with Mariah, his encounter with the police, highlight the challenges and uncertainties of adolescence as well as the decisions and consequences that come with it. As always. So because you kept saying yes the night before, mm -hmm. you know, yes, I'll go with you to Algiers. Yes, I'll go with you. Yes, I'll give you money. Yes, I'll go upstairs. Yes, I'll sit here and listen to your story. And yes, I'll, you know, talk with your grandfather. And then yes, I'll follow you out the window into the Mississippi River. And then yes, I'll follow you into the cemetery. And yes, I'll get up on the mausoleum with you. And yes, let's get it out. <laughs> <laughs> let's experience a romantic interlude because of all those choices yes 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 um you found yourself in it, this consequence so here's uh agreed i agree with all that mm -hmm. uh, i never i could i had plenty of opportunity to say no thank you mm -hmm. And I didn't take that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And part of it was the, a matter of curiosity. Where is this going to go? Yeah. But but um, in later years, I used to kind of think about that time. And I go back to the moment at which uh, a one of those damned necklaces that people are throwing around ended up in my chain and I fell over. Like, what if I had parked my motorcycle someplace else? You know, what would have that, because that was the beginning of this adventure, mm -hmm. right? I'm laying there and these four women walk up and it, that's where it starts. So I used to wonder what would have happened had I uh, not turned down that alley, mm -hmm. had I not tried to walk the, the bike down the street. Uh, and I think a police officer, I kind of remember a police officer saying, get, the, you know, get, get off the street and, walking it down to the, uh, and I could have gotten off the bike. That was the other thing mm -hmm. is I could have walked it down my, the, the, I don't know. I don't want to say it was a mistake. The choice that I made was I stayed on the bike, on the bike seat and I was just walking it down. Which, right, you know, side. with the crowds, that makes yeah, sense. It made more if sense walk getting in the way. to it. Exactly. It would have taken up a lot more space. So then I wasn't even thinking about, oh, there's, there's these necklaces, uh, flying everywhere mm -hmm. you know you just didn't think of it mm -hmm. and the chain crushed it but it tangled it yeah i mean it wasn't because it was a metal necklace right it was simply a tangle and it stopped me long enough so that i lost balance and it i went over and i had that was another thing like two choices do i go over that way and i chose as i felt i was going to fall i knew i was going to fall i had enough time to say let me do it this way because there's a wall here mm. And there was less traffic. And I thought, maybe I'll just lean up against the wall. And what happened is I was too far away. Mm. So I ended up not only, you know, for, uh, laying on my back, but with a motorcycle on top of my legs. So, and luckily, it was not the front of the motorcycle that was on my legs. It was the back. So there was no engine burning, you know, mm. burning its uh, the fins uh, into me. Uh, but I thought, I used to think about that. What if that had never happened? What would that night have been like, mm -hmm. um, I would have just... Might have been of, a little more disappointing. Well, it it might have been not necessarily disappointing because I didn't know any better. Yeah. It might have been less exciting, mm -hmm. right? It might have been, you know, like I'd, 
I'd, I'd write back and I'd go, oh, okay, well, that was Mardi Gras, you know? Yeah. I ate some popcorn. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> was it really worth that long yeah, ride? Yeah, was, was you had to start asking yourself, <laughs> after all, it is the last night. It's supposed to be the big night. Yeah. They're supposed to be going along and uh, going along, having a good time. And going along, having a good time was mostly just uh, um, a lot of adult drunk people. Yeah. Uh, being drunk. And I think a lot, most of us have probably been in a crowd feeling alone. <clears throat> yeah. And we know that feeling, you don't know anybody, you don't, everybody else is already grouped up yeah. and you're just alone in a crowd and mm-hmm. it's not much fun that way. I would have never made it across the river into Algiers. I would mm-hmm. have never met the gypsy. I, you know, mm-hmm. none of that would have happened. I would have walked around for a little while, like I said, bought some popcorn, maybe, you know, found a place that had some trinkets or something like that so that I could claim you know, I was in New Orleans at Mardi Gras. Yeah. And then I would have find, found a place to crash, uh, likely a hotel. I don't think I would have slept on the street. I certainly had enough money for it. And then I would have probably returned the next, you know, mm-hmm. n- not quite, uh, not, you know, like I I would have left, I would have, had that happened, I would have left without the adventure that I was hoping for. Yeah. Like this has this Mardi Gras, it's New Orleans. Come on, mm-hmm. there's got to be something bigger. Not that I didn't have a lot of experiences along the way. So it, it had, there was a lot of credibility in terms of storytelling, mm-hmm. right? It had, I, there was a lot of components necessary to make it into a story. Uh, but that night, the after falling down, was kind of the culmination of what you did. And then it, it led to other things. It led to meeting um, the district attorney, for example. And like, really? This is the guy, you know? Um, getting on the train, uh, meeting the people that I did on the train, you know, there was a lot that would not have happened had a, that motorcycle and I not fallen over. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because if you, uh, do your numerology on your birth date, uh, you're a five mm-hmm. and five is an adventurer. So it was like you were destined to have adventures, to, say yes to life, you know, just say, I'm going to go do it, you know, very, um, take, take the bull by the horns kind of person. And see what who happens. Just, Let's go do it. Let's yeah. try. Yes. And yes. And, mm-hmm. and keep going. Um, because of that lure of that adventure. So it, it was very similar to the day that I decided to join the military because it was like, I just want to get away from here, mm-hmm. you know? And this this guy, this recruiter said, "But well, wait, I I have this." <laughs> yes, and like right. you know, you end up in in a instead of a two year draft yeah. uh, period that would have accomplished the same thing, mm-hmm. right? A two year draft would have got me out of New Mexico, put me through basic training, AIT, and then I'd have gone to Vietnam. Everything all, all that did happen anyway would have happened had I gone like, yeah, let's go with that. But in this case, it was <clears> a choice. Just like this whole adventure was mm-hmm. a choice. You, at any point, you could have said, no, no, I don't want to do that. No, mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. You didn't. You kept saying, yes, yes, I want to choose this. I want to do this. I want to be on this adventure. Mm-hmm. And same when you join the military. And you've heard me talk about my military service. And you know how, not only proud of my time that I spent the service, but about how great it was for me. You know, not a lot of people come out of the military going, that was the best years of my life. Well, up until that point, they were actually the best years of my life. Um, 
Minus the injuries, I'm going to guess. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but again, it's the yes and. Nobody, I volunteered for Vietnam. Yeah. That was another yes and, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I volunteered for uh, uh, assignment to the Rangers, to the, the Vietnamese. It was just like yes and. Let me see what happens here. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, you always have to take into account, like, uh, in the same way that you might have gotten to, stuck like a little piggy, <laughs> you know, well, that you just close call. If you didn't know? have danger, it wouldn't be an adventure, yeah, I guess. That's the way you see it. No. Uh, we'd talk about fear and uncertainty. The arrest and custody process Miguel goes through can be a source of fear and uncertainty for him. The presence of the belligerent man, wedding man, we call him, uh -huh. in the holding cell adds to the tension and fear. And um, that was something that Miguel was not really, I don't think, familiar with. Seeing these belligerent men uh -uh. fighting with the police was like, no, what I is hadn't, that about? I had not led that kind of life. Mm -hmm. I knew that there was times out there that you could read articles in the newspaper saying, you know, a couple of drunks fought the police. and uh, But I had never been um, party or even an observer of any of that. Fiesta every once in a while would get a little sticky wicket, but it was always minor stuff, you yeah. know. People um, tell you to calm down and they yeah, usually would yeah. go home. So, so in that <laughs> sense, uh, I have to tell you, though, to this day, uh, the wedding guy, mm -hmm. I still think of him as looking like... Uh, do you remember the singer Tom Jones? Mm -hmm. He was big. He was that kind of, he was that size and he had the curly hair, mm -hmm. you know, the dark curly hair. That's what I think of when I, whenever I remember him, mm -hmm. like a Tom Jones in a Robin's egg blue wedding outfit with frills. And like, there's a story there someplace. Yeah. It could have been at a wedding or it could have been a musician. Mm -hmm. We didn't know. Yeah. And we have isolation and separation um, because First, you find out that Mariah's gone. So you're feeling like, oh, I'm back to being alone again mm -hmm. on my own. But here's these police officers, so I'm with them now. Uh, <laughs> kind of being passed off to, to different people. But then uh, wanting, I guess, to be separated from the adults mm -hmm. to feel safer. And, of course, the police would want that for you as well. They don't want... Uh, anybody getting hurt on their watch, especially if you're a kid and, you know, they brought you in, you're that's, in their custody, so they're responsible for you. That's the point I was trying to make earlier. You, you just did a better job of it in that they have, by by bringing you in, by putting you in the car, bringing you in, they now have responsibility for you. And so I felt like everything they were doing from fingerprinting to, you know, mug shots to putting me, getting me you know, a set of clothing uh, was... Not as much for we got to put this kid away, you know, it wasn't anything like that as it was for like, well, we got to do something with him. Let's make mm -hmm. sure we don't make a mistake here. Yeah. Putting him in general population, not that they would have done that anyway, but, um, but being very protective, I always felt very safe around them. Mm -hmm. uh, and they didn't make me feel unsafe. Nobody was ever yelling at me or threatening me or anything like that. I think the first encounter was nothing more than a, a confused first encounter on both parties' parts. Like, I don't know who you are and you don't know who I am. And so it was probably a little rougher than it needed to be. But as soon as they realized what they were dealing with, they it kind of changed their tone. They became very protective, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, the desk sergeant, the guy up front especially, uh, you could tell he was just doing his doing his best 
to make sure that nothing bad happened uh, to me. Yeah. You know? so. And uh, I guess once there's there's something in that is like there's good parts and bad parts about being alone. <laughs> you know, you're safe and nobody's going to bother you and nobody's going to annoying you and nobody's telling you what to do and being mean to you or anything like that. But at the same time, you're alone. And that can be a little bit scary. I think it can be a little bit scary if you let it, if you allow it to be. Mm -hmm. uh, because I never felt like that. I, I felt very safe and protected. Yes, I was in a jail cell that didn't have much to it. Um, <clears throat> and I remembered how embarrassed I was uh, going to the bathroom with a big glass double-plated window over oh. there. <laughs> Anybody could walk by and wave, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, but I felt very, I ve although I did, I realized I was alone. I didn't feel alone in that abandoned sense. Like, I don't know why I'm here or what I'm doing. I really had a feeling that they knew what they were doing and that somebody would eventually take care of this. I, I mean, I, I think the worst that I imagined happening during that, I think it was like two nights, uh, was uh, they're going to find out that they don't know who I am or where I come from, and they're going to have to put me out on the street, right? Like that, I imagined that was, well, that's a possibility. And But the more I thought about it as this went through the process of going to meet with the district attorney, I realized they, they would have never done that. Mm -hmm. They would have found a way to uh, make sure that whatever happened to me was uh, positive in the sense that they got me back to my people or my town yeah. or whatever. So, so I think this is kind of that whole uh, takes a village to raise a child. You were, you know, it, back and forth between that. Am I am I am I a man because mm -hmm. I spent the night with a woman last night, mm -hmm. or now I'm a boy again with with these police officers who are telling me what to do and keeping me safe and uh, watching out over me and making sure that you know nobody's going to bother me. Um, you know, and you kind of want that at the same time. It's it's that, you know, you grow up a little bit, but then you like take a step back. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I think we all have something in our in our, you know, in our past stories where we're like, yeah, I was feeling really strong and got out there and I did that thing, and then I, you know, and then I looked to my mom to see if she was there and made sure that I was going to be okay. You mm -hmm. know, we all have that like still need to have that little bit of a security blanket with us. I think I, I think that's right on in the sense that I had gone from Mr. Motorcycle Guy to like, oh, I'm 15. Let me just, you know, yeah. let, me, let me, let me, I think I need to play that role. And I was, yeah. and it wasn't acting, mm -hmm. but I felt like, okay, these guys are, uh, I have the, it is my opinion that these guys are willing to help me maybe even take care of me as long as I don't turn into a jerk, you know, mm -hmm. start acting like a, uh, like a bad adult. Or like you don't need them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't need so you. I I'm out of here. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, it, it was an interesting, you know, 48 hours of my life in that sense. Mm -hmm. And it went by uh, relatively quickly. It was one of those things where it felt like it was never going to end. There was no TVs. There was no, you, I asked, uh, I asked someone to get me a newspaper at some point just so I could figure out, what was going on. I was surprised that there was nothing in the New Orleans newspaper about the finding of this strange young man that comes from another planet. And, you know, <laughs> I was expecting to read something. Or about the stabbing it. of. Yeah. Yeah. Mariah's yeah. None of that was in there, yeah. you know, and um, I, I kind of believe that 
if I had asked any of the police officers that were in this area at that time, uh, they wouldn't have known anything about it either. It's New Orleans. There's stuff like that happening all the time in New Orleans, whether it's Mardi Gras or not. Mm-hmm. And certainly in Algiers, where which has kind of a different uh, mentality or sense of how you deal with what happens in Algiers, mm. uh, at least at that time. I'm sure it's changed by now. Um, but it wasn't until until I got to uh, um, the DA's office um, that I realized, oh, these guys actually knew what they were doing, what they needed to do, and seemed to have solved the problem. You know, I don't know why I never brought up the motorcycle. I never... I just assumed that whatever was going to happen to the motorcycle, I was going to have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And one day I was going to have to work, you know, mm-hmm. as a slave for my Uncle Carlos <laughs> to be back for that damn BSA. <clears throat> we talk a little bit about surrealism and here you're feeling, we use the word surreal. In fact, that the whole, be, oh, this is jail. Okay. This is like almost like a TV show mm-hmm. and, and I've seen this kind of thing on TV shows and yeah, that's, and and then it gets real. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> tell us about that. I so I think what I kept it when I first brought in, again, the police officers were being very kind. Mm-hmm. They weren't being rough with me. Uh, as soon as I got there, they took off the handcuffs. As a matter of fact, the desk sergeant said, take, take it off. He doesn't need the handcuffs. You know, he's not going anywhere. Uh, and I started imagining that any moment now, Joe Friday was going to walk in. You know, that they were going to go past and mm-hmm. wave at the desk sergeant and put their guns in a, you know, and then go back into the jail to interrogate somebody, you know. Uh, it had that kind of feeling. It had that kind of 1960s police, uh, you know, station kind of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the transition occurred literally in a split second as they burst through the door. This guy goes for the police officers he's struggling with them he's yelling they're yelling everybody else the the uh the women that were there started screaming and just out of like uh it was funny because they were speaking in a combination of french and english with an accent and things like that and uh, and it was it was a conversation of people who had experienced this before mm. you know what is wrong with you? What what was what did you know? They were yelling at him. They were yelling at the police. It was just and it and it exploded. Boom! In a split second, there was a lot of noise and a lot of action. And I was just kind of simply rolling back and I'd like get out of this, you know. <laughs> and then I had that moment with him where he he literally caught my eye. You know, what the hell are you looking at, Jack? <laughs> I'm not looking at anything, sir. <laughs> and. Um, and then it and then it quieted down again. Everybody yeah. got back into control. And they got him into the back, um, and I thought my my literally my the thought that one of my head was, man, I hope I don't have to spend any time with that guy. You yeah. Know? Uh, but it was quiet, explosion, quiet again. Mm. And then and then and the the other thing too is every all the police officers everything calmed down quickly. Like everybody in the room, whether you were a police officer or somebody that had been arrested, knew that's how that goes. There's a, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of noise, then it quiets down again, and we go back to they all. They were all smoking. Mm. Everybody was smoking. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I, I didn't say to the police officers, but everybody else in that room was smoking. And that was when, if you wanted to smoke and flick your 
cigarette at the police officer, you could do that. Well, maybe not that, but, <laughs> but um, I mean, it was the proverbial smoke filled room, you mm-hmm. know, because mm-hmm. all the, um, all the, uh, I assume prostitutes that were there, they were all smoking. Yeah. So what kind of a depression did that going from surreal to real and then quiet to loud and back to quiet kind of a effect did that have on you over your life? I'm sure you experienced other moments like that. Do you feel like it like, you know, made a mark on you when it, when that kind of thing happened? So I think the mark that it made on me was I didn't realize till afterwards that that might have been. So when you play football or tennis or chess or debate, you don't generate adrenaline, right? A sport is a sport and whatever adrenaline comes, it's just part of the sport, right? That was probably um, the first time in my life that I experienced the adrenaline rush and the resulting come down. Like, and it's not depressive, but it is, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I got sleepy. Like I had eaten a, you know, Snickers and I got the carbo rush and now I just, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> watch TV and take a nap. Mm. Um, but it was a funny little experience because everybody, you know, medicine will assure you that you can become very addicted to that. Mm. And so what I did from that point forward was anytime it happened, I would I would analyze it like I do with almost everything that happens to my body is I would analyze it. How, how did that, what ha- what happened? What did it generate? What's the, the crash feel like, you know? Uh, and so I had more of those in my life almost every time you find yourself in, um, in a uh, combat situation, you're pumping adrenaline. And when it's over, assuming that you survived it, um, you crash, you absolutely crash. And that continues for, you know, the two years you were in Vietnam, you can, you, you stop counting them, you start thinking about it, you just assume it's part of what you do. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, you've got the shakes. And um, you, your first thing, I, uh, Vietnam was the only place in my life that I smoked. But after one of those things, the first thing you look for is who's got a cigarette. Mm. And um, uh, so it continued, I mean, it, to, to the very last assignment that I had uh, in Afghanistan, there was that adrenaline rush. I don't think, I'm going to be cautious when I say this because I'm not sure, but I don't think I ever became addicted to it. I didn't need the adrenaline. I didn't need to do something that would cause the adrenaline rush. It was just part of my work and it would happen and I'd let it go and, you know, move on. Um, but there is a psychology associated with it because it's a chemical that inserts itself into your brain. Uh, it has, it creates some, you know, some dynamics that it, it, as it leaves your brain, it uh, puts you into a, a depressive state, depressive physiologically as opposed to emotionally. And so you have to deal with it. And I think that's why a lot of times you end up, um, as you come back from one of those situations and you happen to be in Iraq this time, the first thing that you do is you go to the bar, you know, oh man, that was a day, you know. Um, but I never, I don't ever feel like I became uh, a, so addicted to it that it affected my direction in life. I wasn't looking, I wasn't necessarily looking for excitement as much as I was looking for 
achievement, accomplishment. Um, and I and I don't mean that in a Grammy or you know Oscar award winning way. I just mean like I always felt like I had a commitment to complete the work that um, well. To I always felt like I needed to complete the work that I had committed to in contract. And um, and so sometimes there would be adrenaline-generating moments in the completion of that contract. But for me, it was always the contract. It was always what I committed to do. And uh, the one and only, well, I, was gonna, I shouldn't say that. Because there were, other, there were some contracts where the contract couldn't be completed. Circumstances changed, the rationalization for the client had changed. So, um, you know, we're going to pay off your contract, come home kind of thing. That Afghanistan was one of the few times that I felt like I left, uh, not not through by choice, but I left before I completed the contract. That was that was one of the few times. So, and we'll get into those stories someday. Someday. <laughs> um, another topic is uh, injustice and authority. Um, encountering the police officers and the arrest process touches on the themes of authority and potential injustice within the criminal justice system. Um, my son kind of noticed that this was an easy trip for mm-hmm. Miguel that, you know, nothing bad didn't encounter any pr- police shenanigans or brutality or mm-hmm. anything bad from the police. The police mm-hmm. were very helpful and they were actually there to serve and protect and, and treated you well. Um, now, this was the day after Mardi Gras, so I imagine that they expected there were going to be all kinds of tourists in town who were misbehaving, and the worst that you had done was fall asleep in a cemetery, so mm-hmm. it wasn't like you were being bad. You were just where you weren't supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And um, so, of course, there's no reason for them to treat you badly over that. But um, I, I guess you never felt a sense of injustice over being detained and taken in. I used to think about it because I think they had the option of pushing me off the mausoleum and saying, get on your way. Mm-hmm. Right. They didn't have to take me in. I hadn't done anything wrong sleeping on a mausoleum, considering that they were dealing with drunks all over New Orleans as a result of Mardi Gras was not, it was not, maybe there's a law that says, you know, you can't sleep in cemeteries or something like that. But uh, I was, I didn't do anything wrong. I hadn't, as far as I was concerned, and I didn't, they didn't, since they didn't arrest me, I don't think they thought I did anything wrong. But the conversation that we had, it was much more detailed that we put in the book, but the conversation was their recognition that I was in the wrong place, right? That that I had no explanation for why I was there and coming up, you know, they, they thought I was from Mexico. And um, and uh, I think they took me in not as a matter of uh, the, the justice system behaving like it should. It was the justice system going like, we're not sure what to do with this, but we don't feel like the right thing to do is just let him go on his way. And I could have argued that point. You know, I could have argued about, I haven't done anything wrong. I just need to get home, you know, because mm-hmm. the next question they would have asked was, where's home? 
And I would have said, uh, I don't know, I would have probably lied to them, but, but <laughs> you know, it's on the other side in Algiers. I'm going back there. Oh, sure, buddy, you know. Uh, so I, I didn't feel like I was being treated unjustly, and I didn't feel like I was unsafe. And so at that point, it was the yes and, like, mm -hmm. where am I going to go from here, right? Um, I'd never had handcuffs put on me, you know, so that was an in interesting experience. I kept, I kept looking at them because he didn't do it behind my back. Mm -hmm. I just, I kept looking at him and like, oh, uh, handcuffs, damn. Because <laughs> um, it seemed like you were more upset with the sheriff who delayed your trip rather than yeah. you were with these officers. I, I had, I had, I wasn't quite as comfortable with him with the sheriff as I was with these police officers, because I felt like the sheriff had like a, let's figure out what I can pin on this kid. Mm. You know, he didn't, he didn't make me, uh, he didn't make me feel, he didn't make me feel unsafe, but he didn't make me feel as safe as I did with these police officers mm. with it, with everyone that I came in contact. I mean, the most unsafe moment moment was wedding guy blowing up, but even that was, you could tell that was only going to go to certain, to, a certain distance before they took care of it. So I never felt, even with the sheriff, I never felt like I was being treated like a criminal, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I didn't, I didn't feel unsafe. I just felt like uh, this is the, the guy in Texas. This is a guy that could put me back on my motorcycle and tell me, go home, buddy, mm -hmm. you know? That that's what I worried about. Mm. But again, he found out the same thing. He after he talked to uh, Uncle Carlos, what he's just doing what he wants. He, he hasn't done anything wrong. And um, live and learn, I guess. Um, so you had a good adventure, and you were ready to see what else. You, I, you could get into. Yeah, I was. Uh, I don't know. I, was, I could get into. <laughs> I was uh, have, after having the adventure. I did. I think what had opened my eyes was to the possibilities. Right, like I was ready to do whatever these guys wanted to do. I wasn't going to argue with them. I was going to. I was at the stage where okay, you know, I don't need to keep writing to Florida or to New York or things like that. Mm -hmm. Those are decisions I had already made, but I felt confident that that nothing. And I had no reason to believe it, but I felt confident that nothing that was going to happen from this point forward was going to be bad. I'm not going to end up in a jail cell in New Orleans. And I knew that. And I, I can't tell you how I knew that, but I just felt that, you know. And so uh, it was another one of those, yes, yeah, sure, I'll go with you. You want to go, want to take me to the police station? Yeah, let me go with you. You want me to take a shower, get some clean clothes off? Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> you know. Uh, the meeting with Garrison was, uh, you know, I, 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 I never felt afraid. Mm -hmm. Like I never felt like this man who had the reputation that he did as a tough uh, member of the justice system. I didn't feel like he was going to make anything bad happen to me. And when it was obvious by the time I got there, he had this all figured out and did what he thought was the right thing. And I was grateful that what he thought, the right thing to do was to to send me home. No. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, that's all I have. Uh, unless you have any other stories you'd like to share about so, uh, justice I think, and injustice? Yeah. I mean, I had plenty of time in my life to see justice and injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, when I was a freshman in college, we went down to Juarez and got in trouble. And we were thrown in the Juarez, that's the Guadalajara, the state, jail. And I was in jail with a bunch of really bad, ugly people that caused me a night of no sleep just because I wanted to make sure that I'd wake up in the morning and I would still be a proverbial virgin, (laughs) you know, but, um, so that was bad. There was a night, uh, in Vietnam in a connex stripped down to my boxer shorts, beaten, handcuffed manacles to the floor of the connex, uh, for, pretending to throw a hand grenade at some MPs. I didn't. <laughs> but my boss got me. They called my boss and they said, you know, you got to come up and get this guy. So he came and got me. Yeah. So um, the the event in Afghanistan, I was basically in a hotel for two weeks. You know, they arrested me. They came and arrested me at the um, inside the green zone and uh, took me and put me in this old holiday inn where I had to stay two weeks with terrible food um until the um until the um council come and got came and got me out so my experiences in those situations have not been anywhere as negative as experiences with you know balkan warlords or afghani warlords or Colombian warlords, you know, um, those have been a lot more frightening and the potential like, oh, this doesn't feel right, mm-hmm. you know. The, my situations with these others have always gone like, oh, I, I got myself in trouble. And, I, and I'm really good at not blaming anybody else for my situations, right? I got myself, I shouldn't have thrown that hand grenade at the MPs. Um, so, uh, but... I my experiences with the justice system has always been not negative. Like mm-hmm. I don't have a bad view of the justice systems. My brothers and sisters, on the other hand, because they had so many encounters with the justice system and paid the price, that their perception is that they were they picked on us, we were mistreated, you mm-hmm. know, I never did anything wrong. So I had that contrast. And um I didn't I didn't feel like I had the right to advise them that things would be better if you wouldn't fight it or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't neither qualified nor uh, responsible uh, for that. Um, so if I had ever said to them, oh, my experience with the justice systems has been very positive, <clears throat> it would have been like talking to someone who was in a cult. Like, <laughs> yeah, They would just look at you like you were crazy. So perception. It's all about perception. Yeah. How and you perceive it and what you do with it. Taking responsibility. Taking responsibility and not being, not necessarily being a jerk. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to be a jerk, right? If you do something wrong, you're going to, what's that saying? We've done the crime, you're going to have to do the time, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the times where I did things wrong that got me into trouble like that, I should not have been anywhere. The red zone in Juarez trying to cross a... Uh, children's park in the dark 
at three o'clock in the morning. Like, you know, that was just stupid. There's nothing courageous about it or adventurous about that. That was just plain stupid. <laughs> and the worst part about it is I had to stay. It was a weekend and all the other, but they made, they called your, they made you call your parents and your parents had to drive down to Juarez to pick you up. And so this was, we were arrested on a Friday night. We called on a Saturday. Most of the parents came down on Sunday and my mother made me wait until Monday. Like mm. you're going to learn this lesson, my brother. Uh, so that was a good, good lesson. Never, <laughs> never wanted to go to Juarez again after that. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's all we have for today. We have uh, two good long chapters there, 31 and 32, and all about uh, Miguel's first trip to the jail with the police. And uh, next week, we'll continue on with uh, his experience with the with the police and, and what they ended up doing with him, which you heard a little bit about today, but we'll, you know, fill, up, fill in the blanks. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll fill in the blanks next week. Um, Make sure you join us for that. If you're interested in catching up on all of the stories that you've missed out on, we do have a blog that you can read. We have, of course, all of our videos that you can read, uh, watch, and uh, our podcast that you can listen to. So um, it's a great way to, you know, spend some time listening to stories while you're out walking or washing the dishes or whatever it is you like to do when you're listening to a podcast. Um, so that is available to you if you prefer listening to a podcast or if you prefer reading we have blogs out there and you can go to blog.agekingmedia.studio and it'll take you to our blog or if you want to find the podcast just look up our story your story and any of your podcast providers and i got to tell you if you uh read the material on our blog um you're going to be re reading material that is written by what i consider an outstanding writer and shelly carney she writes beautifully and um, and with a great deal of care uh, to the um, intricacies of what's going on in any particular situation. I love the way she writes. Well, thank you. <clears throat> and uh, last week, or this week, actually, we would have put out a blog about our trip to South Carolina because we had a beautiful trip to South Carolina last week to visit family and spend the Halloween uh, weekend with some uh, – really cute little kiddos and had a great time. It was fun being with them. It yeah. really was. So if you are not on our email list, make sure you do that. Uh, and you can catch up on that story as well. Uh, we put out a uh, newsletter email every Tuesday. And to get on the list, just go to news.agkmedia.studio. And all of these links are going to be in the description as well. And get on our email list and uh, you'll get to see all the photos that we took. And, and it's Well, not all of them. We took a lot of photos. We took but a lot of photos. But we get to, you get a good sampling yeah. of the photos that we took. So check that out. All right. Anything else? I think that's it. All right. Thanks for being here. We'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Our Story, Your Story. We hope you enjoyed hearing our stories and those of our guests. We invite you to share your own stories with us by emailing us at stories at agkmedia.studio. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. Until next time, keep telling your story because your story matters. <laughs>